if you if you could say we saved the best for last, I think we have an extremely talented panel uh, to end our conference today. And, and again, if there was one benefit of postponement of this conference from February to April, I'll say it again, it was that we could, uh, could ask uh, and beg and plead for uh, Norwegian uh, Deputy Defense Minister Espen Barth Ida to be with us today. Um, Minister Barthida is a great friend to CSIS, and uh, uh, we sometimes I, I ask him to take his uh, formal government hat off and put his think tank hat on because he comes from the think tank world when he isn't Deputy Foreign Minister or Deputy Defense Minister. Uh, we are so grateful that he uh, is going to provide us, as I mentioned this morning, some uh, the freshest of news uh, after yesterday's historic uh, agreement between Norway and Russia on a maritime delimitation which is extremely important, obviously, to Arctic issues. So with your indulgence, we've asked the Deputy Minister to provide us with some comments and, and an overview, not only of this historic uh, agreement, but also from a, a broader regional perspective. After the Deputy Minister has finished his comments, then we'll begin with the rest of the panelists. So without further ado, Mr. Deputy Minister, thank you. Thank you, Heather, and it's, uh, it's really great to be here at uh, CSIS in this very important uh, and uh, well-organized uh, setting. Uh, I must say that I've been uh, thoroughly encouraged by the tone and approach and competence of all we've heard so far. Uh, I fundamentally agree with almost everything I've heard. That, of course, uh, could suggest that uh, what's going to follow will be boring because it has already been said. I'll try to avoid that. Uh, but I must say that we have come f a very long way over relatively few years in defining what this agenda is and what it is not. And both is important. And I think what I, what I was going to say, planning to say before I came here, but which basically has already come out of, I think, all the interventions, is that the issue of the Arctic, or what we refer to as the high north, is important. It's sort of, it's big time change. It's really, it's a change of potentially large geopolitical dimensions, and it really has to be addressed. At the same time, it's not an acute drama. It's not an open void and a quest to fill an open void in a completely uncontrolled uh, circumstance, uh, which will end up in some kind of resource uh, war, uh, which I think a few, quite a lot of people also were arguing only a few years ago. So I think it has been placed on the agenda where, where it should be as a, as a crucial theme to all the Arctic states and, and other interested states. Uh, but it is not an issue which necessarily should lead to a dramatic uh, and, and violent uh, conflict. The challenge of dealing with these kind of issues is that uh, people in general, the press and general audience, does not perceive the area as problematic because there are few problems currently emerging from the region. Hence, we have our attention elsewhere. And the problems we're trying to solve in the Arctic are not necessarily the problems of today, but the problems that we will have if we do not address them now. So it's the, it's the, it's the future problems that will, will, will occur, most likely, if we don't deal with them early, which we are actually trying to deal with. And of course, that kind of challenge uh, has a difficulty when it is to compete with all the acute immediate issues that we're dealing with of Afghanistan and Iran and so on, which presents itself on the table right now. Uh, and I think, you know, for, for strategic thinkers, be it in the defense field or in the civilian 
uh, various uh, civilian agencies, it is important that we can distribute our time and our mental capacity between the solving the urgent and acute issues which need to be addressed, but also have capacity to think in the long run uh, at the same time. And that's what's happening here, and I think that's fundamentally encouraging. And I, I very much associate myself with what Jim Steinberg just said, that if we get this right, it is not only important for the Arctic, but it sends a very positive signal for, uh, for the solution of other international challenges and problems and global comments, whatever you want to call it. We have been discussing about the interrelationship between, the, uh, uh, be between energy, uh, uh, fish, marine resources, the transport routes, security, legal issues. And I want to, rather than repeat all the, all the arguments, I want to underline that they are interconnected. There are many open questions. For instance, in the, in the, energy, uh, in the energy area, uh, the fact is that there is a lot of... Uh, oil and gas, particularly gas resources up there. We do not know exactly how much, but there is quite a lot, that's for certain. Um, the question is how, how much of that would actually be extracted. That, again, depends on the development of the demand, the prices, and so on. A lot of uh, uncertainties there, and I think some, both companies and countries, are, are adjusting their calculations from what we had only a year or two ago because of new technological innovation and so on. Uh, exploitation of gas in the Arctic is expensive. Uh, and technolo technologically intensive, and that means that you need to have a, a, a perception of a continuous high price in order actually to, to, um, to warrant uh, major investments. Interconnections between this and, uh, and, and, uh, and the continued uh, uh, pres preserving and exploitation in a safe way of the uh, fish and maritime resources incredibly important. Some of the cleanest waters, some of the, the best preserved fish stocks are up here, but they can be challenged by the uh, environmental, by the uh, energy exploitation, but also by transport, because transport may bring organic material which challenges the fine uh, ecosystems uh, up in the north, and of course by climate change itself. Another starting point I just want to stress, I think everybody agrees with it, but you know, global warming uh, and the melting of the ice cap is bad news. So when we are addressing the consequences, it is not that we are rejoicing the fact that we can sail further up north. It's bad news, but it is happening. And, uh, and we have to you know, use all the forests to find ways to reduce the pace by which that's happening. But, it's, but, but the things will change. Uh, I, I think that the, the possibility of uh, uh, transit routes... Um, uh, is, although I, mean, I, I, I do hear what Steve Carmel said, and it will take more time than we originally thought, maybe, uh, maybe that's good. I, don't, I think there's many good sides to that. But it's sufficiently probable that we have to deal with it as a potential issue. Um, and, and if we take that seriously, we will also recognize that in, that, in, 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 in the geoeconomic shift that uh, new transport routes will entail, there will be winners and losers. And we want to look into that. Carmel was pointing out the fact that the people who have some kind of interest in the, in, in the uh, Suez Canal uh, route, uh, either it's Egypt, uh, the state of Egypt, uh, collecting revenues, or uh, uh, on the opposite side, uh, the uh, Somali uh, pirates, uh, you know, they will probably be losers if uh, transport goes uh, in a different direction. Um, but, but also in the sense that so which part of the world is most interested in, uh, in, in, in having faster and cheaper access to Western markets. Well, that's, again, 
China and, and, and the emerging Asian, Asian powers. So again, relative winners and relative losers uh, will also always be the case in that setting. Uh, and, uh, and I'm going to go uh, come soon to sort of the main topic of this panel, which is the security and military dimension. But let me say a few words about uh, yesterday's uh, breakthrough. Russia and Norway, or rather the Soviet Union, then Russia on one side, and Norway have been negotiating uh, about these areas for 40 years, since 1970. Um, uh, that's also preceding the uh, unclose. Uh, when we came to the ni 1978, we were able to negotiate a, a grey zone agreement, which did not delineate, but which, uh, man which was an agreement on how to manage the fish stocks. That has worked. We have actually, and this is with the Soviet Union. It's, it's far uh, long before the end of the Cold War. It was possible to do that based on a common recognition of a mutual interest in not having this in a, as an unregulated area, but it was specific to fisheries control. And, and after that, we had certain you know, commissions, joint commissions, and we had Coast Guard uh, uh, control, um, patrols and, and so on that sort of dealt with that uh, issue. But the fundamental issue of the delineation um, was not uh, settled until yesterday. A, a very important point is that since the uh, entry into force of the uh, UNCLOS, the UN Convention on the Law of the Seas, um, that has been applicable law. And th this is crucially important, because despite of the fact that we have disagreed with Russia, we have agreed upon which is the law that we disagree within, you know, which, which is the applicable law. And it should be said, and we can say now that we have a, a, a signed agreement, I think both sides would probably be ready to recognize that the other side had certain points. Uh, it's, it's not that it was, I mean, although obviously we thought our legal interpretation was better than the Russian, and uh, still think so. I mean, it was not so that the Russian legal argument was not based on, on you know, all existing principles in the Law of the Sea Convention. It was different interpretations of principles between the uh, equidistance line, or the previously referred to as the median line, which basically uh, found out what is sort of the middle ground between the land, the, the relevant land borders, and the sector principle, which basically starts by drawing a line up to the North Pole and adjusting somewhat for, 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 for the territory, which, uh, which meant that there was a disagreement about 176,000 square kilometers. That's, uh, for those of you of American persuasion, that's 110,000 uh, square uh, miles. Uh, and uh, it's a large area. Uh, fish... But, of course, what, what became increasingly important was the understanding on both sides of, that, of, uh, of the Norwegian-Russian border that eventually we could find gas and oil up there. And that was not regulated by the Grey Zone Agreement. So we didn't have a legal framework to deal with that if that happened until we have been restraining ourselves when it comes to exploitation and ex exploration, rather, uh, in this area, precisely because we didn't want to grow into a problem which we then didn't want to solve. And it became rather important to find a solution uh, rather soon uh, so that from now on, you know, we, have, we would have a legal, legal basis. And uh, what eventually happened was that uh, the agreement was found by, by basically dividing the area into two. So the red line is the new line, the new division line, which actually is the... Uh, it's an almost perfect balance between the, the Russian argument and the Norwegian argument, dividing the area pr for all practical purposes into two equal halves. There are some 
there are some uh, minor technical details to be spelled out, but that's going to happen because there's full agreement on how that's going to be done, and then it has to be ratified in the Duma and in the Norwegian Parliament. I am very confident that uh, that will go uh, speedily and effectively on, on both sides. This actually takes away our main bilateral issue uh, with Russia. Uh, but I want to stress, and I, this is really my point in this context, that it's a bilateral solution found within a multilateral framework uh, the, 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 uh, that has been developed over many years. And I think the, if you want you know, to find out why did this happen right now, uh, there's a number of I mean, I, I think there will be several history books written about that, from, uh, at least from Norwegian and Russian writers and probably some others. Uh, so we don't have the whole uh, answer to that yet, but uh, it has to do with the specifics of the negotiations as such. But as always in bilateral relations, it is, also, of course, also related to the general climate between the two countries. And Norway has, as a NATO member for 61 years, uh, founding, one of the founding fathers of NATO, we've had a solid platform in NATO, in the West, uh, as we referred to in the old days, from which we could have an organized bilateral relationship with Russia. I mean, there was certainty about where we were, uh, and, and that was clear to us, and it was also clear to the Soviet Union and clear to the Russians. Um, and, and, we had, and so we had a series of pra practical bilateral arrangements uh, with the Soviet Union, later with uh, Russia, of course, vastly expanding after the end of the Cold War with the Barents Cooperation Initiative from 1993 uh, and so on, and, uh, uh, and also due to the fact that we had a lot of people-to-people -people contact, the, the counties in the Norwegian north and the Russian uh, north, the oblasts in the, in the, in the Russian northwest uh, have had a, a vast increase in cooperation on the government level and on, uh, on people uh, level, on commercial level over, the, over these years. And uh, sometimes that, that particular foreign relations of the high north coming out of the Norwegian-Russian border has sometimes been you know, superimposing itself on, uh, on, on the bilateral relationship between the capitals in, in at times, a, a, positive, a positive way. So that framework, I think, was uh, made, made that possible. And I hope, of course, we hope, and I th I'm, I'm sure that this uh, shared understanding with uh, Russia and Norway, that this can be an inspiration also for, for other countries to find a solution. Um, the... Some years ago, and there was a lot of focus on the, the planting of the titanium flag on the bottom of the seabed. Uh, we, we can discuss, you know, how smart that was. Uh, actually, Norway used to plant flags too, so we have some experience. And we used to plant flags 100 years ago on the South Pole and the North Pole. We know that they don't become Norwegian for that reason. I mean, that's, that's sort of, we learned that uh, a long time ago. Actually, that wasn't even claimed by Russia, and that should be understood. I mean, this, is, this was a symbolic gesture. But once that had happened, we had a number of reactions to that, and I think it's quite important that we think about, you know, when a thing like that happened, how do you react to it? Are you, by, through your own reaction, or through one's own reaction, are we, are we speaking it into relevance, in a sense? Uh, and I think there were some, uh, some signs of that uh, in the immediate aftermath of the flag planting, which is why the Ilulisat declaration and that particular meeting at five among the, the immediate coastal states was so important. But what the meeting, what, what the declaration actually says is basically reconfirm the legal status as it was. So, I mean, the, the lawyers will say there's nothing new here. Well, that's the point. The point was to say we all agree, all the, 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 the Arctic NATO states and, and, and Russia agree that 
the Arctic is an ocean, that we have a law of the seas convention that uh, most of us have uh, both signed and ratified, and uh, some have signed but not ratified, but still respect, uh, and, uh, and that that is the applicable law within which this is solved. Another point is that what's happened here at also previous experiences from the Norwegian side is that I think we are a living demonstration that it is, it is in a country's self-interest to, uh, to sign and ratify because we, it, it, it gives material benefits that you have that clear legal claim. It's, it, it makes a, a, a sound uh, basis for, for sound relations with your neighbors, but it also gives you a legal claim that, that actually gives you access to larger parts of, uh, of the ocean that you would otherwise have had. All right. We could take questions later, but I'm not going to spend all the time on, on this breakthrough. On, on, on the point I was supposed to speak about, just one, one minute. Uh, uh, military security dimension. I think that that debate has been, I mean, until recently, that debate was between those saying there should be no military dimension, because if, you, if there is a military dimension, that's a militarization, on the one hand, and those saying that, you know, that because of the strategic interest, we must have a strong military focus. I will sort of um, uh, subscribe to the common you know, the middle ground there, saying that there is a military niche to much of this. Much of it has already been talked about. Search and rescue capacities in the far north, in the high Arctic, uh, uh, very inaccessible areas, uh, sea and air, will be military because we have too little of it, all of us, but that's the best we got. And the military has an organization, capabilities, that can do more than most civilian agencies uh, in this field. So there's uh, that kind of, uh, of uh, military relevance. But also the whole issue of surveillance, uh, communications, uh, presence, uh, which doesn't have to do with military against military, but the fact that the area is becoming more important. So it's nothing but logical that you also have a, a bigger military presence. But it's important that that is calibrated in such a way that we are not militarizing <laughs> issues that, uh, that, were, that, that are better solved in the civilian field. And to strike that balance, not only in our own interpretation, but also in the interpretation of others. So, you know, sometimes what we do, which we think looks nice, uh, may not look nice from the other side. So you, you have to, to see how that is balanced. But there is a military dimension to it. Uh, Russia has uh, presented an Arctic uh, strategy and, and, uh, and stated that it will enhance its Arctic capabilities. I actually think that's quite logical. I mean, if the area is becoming more important and a half of the coast is Russian, I, I would be surprised if the Russian did not prepare for being able to access it. I mean, that's not dramatic. Uh, sometimes that is confused with another development, which is that which we see from very close quarters, which is that we see more military activity coming out of the Russian North, the Kola Peninsula, uh, flights, strategic bombers, uh, uh, Admiral Kuznetsov, the big uh, carrier, submarines, and so on. But that's not necessarily an Arctic issue. It's just that if you want to leave the, if, if you have your resources in the Kola Peninsula and you want to go somewhere, you have to go through the Barents Sea because there's no other way to go when you want to fly. Either you violate somebody's uh, airspace or you fly a northern route, right? So, I mean, so it, it's important not to confuse these two as being the same thing. Obviously, for Norway as a neighbor, we follow this closely. Uh, we follow this for our own interest, for our common NATO interest. But we also, you know, and, and we report and, and, and do all that we're supposed to do in that setting. But we also want to issue a warning against overly dramatizing this as, as particularly concerning. Uh, and I think that we have certain, uh, you know, certain reasons to, to do that. So 
in the debate that we are having now uh, in NATO about the new strategic concept, which I think is a very important debate and which, by the way, has also been inspired by a report that was written at the CSIS together with uh, three other uh, Washington think tanks uh, uh, some time ago. Um, there is this topic about the, the balance between the home dimension and the away dimension or the uh, home missions and the away missions of NATO. I clearly think that increased political focus with the certain relevant uh, military uh, consequences for NATO in the high north is a good thing. I think it's a good thing, but it must be framed within this comprehensive approach, whole of government approach, uh, where, where uh, we are not uh, militarizing what is not military. And my very final point, point Heather, is that, to conclude where I started, the whole debate we're having is about avoiding future problems, investing today in order to avoid future problems. The good news is that uh, this is an area where um, we, we, we lack some of the problems that we see elsewhere. There are no failed states up here. There, I mean, they're all you know, well-working states that want to cooperate uh, and have the capability to, co to cooperate. And we have a legal, legal institution and we have a set of institutions already existing that we have to fill content into in order to, to deal with this. That's the good news. Of course, the bad news is, or the, or the, the, the warning light, is that it's not going to fix itself. It's not so that if we sit down and come back in 10 years, we will discover that it is fixed. Because if we are not fixing it, who's going to do that? So, I mean, we really need a serious debate now about how we fulfill what has been, you know, our Norwegian uh, slogan in this setting, to keep the areas at this uh, high north, low tension. Thank you for the attention so far. Well, thank you very much. That, uh, I think, tees up a great discussion, uh, and thank you for providing the insights on, uh, on this uh, very important uh, agreement. Without further ado, I'd like to turn to uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense, Sandy Vershbow. Um, you have bio, so I'm going to be very brief, but um, Sandy has led such a distinguished uh, career uh, foreign service officer. He has been U.S. ambassador to some of the most prestigious uh, embassies, whether that's Moscow, NATO mission in Brussels, or Seoul. And uh, we are delighted that he continues his extraordinary service to his nation in the Defense Department as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. So, Sandy, over to you. Thanks very much, Heather, uh, for that nice introduction. And uh, thanks to Dr. Hamry, CSIS, and the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies uh, for putting on today's conference. And uh, congratulations on the timing. <laughs> Let me uh, join everyone else in extending my congratulations to uh, the governments of Norway and Russia for uh, yesterday's historic agreement. Uh, certainly contributes to uh, our conference, and it throws down the gauntlet between the United States and Canada to, to see if we can uh, see if we can take less than another 40 years to uh, to solve ours border dispute. Now, although the title of uh, the conference is U.S. U.S. Strategic Interests in the High North, I'd like to place a uh, bit more emphasis in my remarks on some of our common interests in the region, uh, because there are many of them, and without a clear understanding of what's at stake, uh, there's a risk that states may assume attitudes and behaviors uh, that could undermine these very important common interests and create a competitive dynamic that no one wants. And that was Espen's last point. Uh, but as he said, there's no drama today. We have plenty of time to get it right, and that applies to the security and defense dimension as well. Uh, we're still many decades away from seeing regular trans-Arctic activity, uh, 
But for a moment, let's imagine that it's 2040, and uh, the most aggressive projections of uh, sea ice melting have come true, uh, that, this, that the ice cap formerly separating the Arctic coastal states has melted away into a new open ocean. Lines of commerce, a growing tourist industry around the North Pole, and cutting-edge scientific research and uh, exploration initiatives have made this uh, maritime commons a bustling place. Uh, it's a very exciting vision, but with opportunities come challenges. And uh, consider the following scenarios. Uh, number one, a, a research ship carrying a multinational crew of scientists strikes an uncharted shoal and begins taking on water. Uh, do we have the assets and the infrastructure we need to perform a rapid search and rescue procedure? And uh, we have to keep in mind that an unprotected person can survive only 15 minutes of exposure to the icy Arctic waters. Uh, scenario two, an oil tanker loses power in international waters and is drifting near an ice flow. Can we coordinate the necessary equipment to avoid an imminent environmental disaster and to effectively mitigate the effects of pollution if the worst happens? Scenario three, a cruise ship carrying 500 passengers to the North Pole is hijacked by a group of pirates. Uh, we may have chased the Somalis out of their current operating areas. They're already moving east. Now they're going to move north. <laughs> so uh, what, what is the forum? <laughs> what, what's, what's the forum or the, uh, the institution for deciding on a course of action? And who will actually implement it? The sea anywhere in the world is an unforgiving environment, and the Arctic is just the most extreme example. Uh, so as the ice progressively melts and we inherit a new ocean, guaranteeing human safety and security will perforce be a primary concern. And I believe we have a responsibility to work together to ensure that we develop uh, a collective capability for search and rescue at sea, humanitarian aid, and disaster response, just to name a, a number of the missions. Uh, we also have a responsibility to study the effects of climate change and ensure that we protect uh, our citizens who live in the areas most, most affected by it. In order to accomplish this uh, on the part of the U.S., different elements of our government will, will need to work closely together. So it's very good that my colleagues from, uh, from the State Department, U.S. NORTHCOM, UCOM, and NORAD, as well as the U.S. Coast Guard, have also been participating uh, in today's events. And I'm looking forward to working closely together as, uh, as we continue to develop our Arctic policy. We clearly also need to work uh, more closely together with our Arctic neighbors. Uh, and I think, uh, as others have already mentioned today, there's a long and successful his history of cooperation within the Arctic Council. And we believe that it is the most appropriate forum in which to address most Arctic issues. Uh, in 2008, the U.S. reaffirmed its recognition of the international legal framework governing the Arctic Ocean, including the law of the sea, when we signed the Ilyusat Declaration. Uh, as uh, Jim Steinberg said, my department continues to urge ratification of the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea. Uh, it's crucial to cooperation in the Arctic, and achieving ratification in the Senate is a high priority of the administration. Now, questions persist about how we should discuss the Arctic. Uh, some have asked uh, whether NATO's new strategic con concept should contain an Arctic element, or whether the European Commission should send an, a an accredited observer to the Arctic Council. Uh, there are also some issues that we'll work to resolve in the years ahead. Uh, I was going to say several literal states, the number is dwindling, have uh, outstanding boundary issues. Uh, these have to be addressed bilaterally and through other appropriate legal mechanisms. Uh, and needless to say, 
the existence of these ongoing disputes further underscores the impor importance of my country's accession to the Law of the Sea Convention. While it's projected that most uh, undiscovered energy resources are within uh, the established national exclusive economic zones, uh, the melting ice will most likely unveil new energy and other natural resources beyond the EEZs. Uh, thus far, there have been no efforts to limit anyone's access to these, res these resources, and we must also remember that uh, we're not talking about Antarctica. The Arctic is an ocean surrounded by land, and the ocean must therefore be open to navigation by all countries. That's a matter of principle. Uh, many of the concerns raised by these sorts of issues are already being discussed in a proactive manner in uh, the Arctic Council, uh, a forum that does include all the stakeholders in the region. While media coverage tends to focus on points of contention, uh, both real and perceived, uh, and rhetoric sometimes fuels these headlines, uh, I think that uh, the, the actual picture is more positive. We certainly want to uh, continue to encourage an emphasis on developing capabilities that address real concerns, humanitarian assistance and disaster response, and search and rescue at sea. Uh, we hope that countries will continue to avoid a competitive dynamic as they pursue the development of these kinds of capabilities, uh, since such a dynamic would be contrary to uh, the existing frameworks of cooperation uh, in the Arctic. Uh, there are also technologies of global collaboration that work well in other parts of the world and could serve us well in the Arctic. Uh, for example, over 60 nations have now joined in the International Maritime Safety and Security Information System, which enables government-to-government -government data sharing on vessel traffic throughout the world. Uh, participating nations can then use this information to improve security, trade, and environmental stewardship. By encouraging partner nations to invest in such systems and share information, we can move forward into the frontier of the Arctic uh, with greater confidence. So to come back to the theme of this panel, I think there are some clear choices we'll all need to make as we go forward. Uh, we can choose to focus on parochial interests and take a zero-sum approach to areas where we differ, risking steps that may ignite tensions in the region, or cooler heads can prevail. Uh, the bottom line is that relations in the Arctic uh, have primarily been characterized by strong multilateral and bilateral ties and collaboration, and we feel that it is strongly in our interest to continue and sustain that trend. While some uh, Russian politicians have engaged in flamboyant rhetoric about Russia's claims in the Arctic, uh, the Russian government has taken a constructive approach, including chairing the Arctic Council Task Force on Search and Rescue with us. I think yesterday's Norwegian-Russian agreement is another hopeful sign that Russian policy in the Arctic is going to be grounded in cooperation and a search for common interests. And certainly, we need to continue to encourage that approach. So I began by outlining a few of the key Arctic challenges uh, and interests that the U.S. believes are best faced together, search and rescue, scientific exploration, environmental protection, one could add resource development, as many other priorities in the region. Uh, I'm optimistic that we will continue, as we have in the past, to keep these common interests foremost in our minds as we uh, collaborate, because ultimately it will be the, a question of choice. Uh, the words, actions, and attitudes that we choose to employ, rather than any predetermined factors, will decide whether we see cooperation or conflict in the Arctic. Thanks. Thank you very much for those great great and insightful comments. Turning now, it is uh, a, both a great pleasure and a privilege uh, to welcome 
um, Vice Admiral Dean McFadden here with us today. Uh, Admiral McFadden is the Canadian Chief of the Maritime Staff and Commander of the Navy. He has uh, had such a distinguished career. He spans the Pacific and the Atlantic in his duties. And I think uh, as much of our discussion this morning talked about uh, Canadian response, Canadian engagement, uh, you could not be more well-placed to speak to us. So with that, uh, Admiral McFadden, thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, there we are. Um, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure for me to be here this afternoon. I represent General Walt Matinchuk, who's Canada's Chief of the Defence Staff. And what I hope to do is to share a Canadian perspective on this emerging topic, a topic that covers, I think as we know, a pretty significant area of the globe. Uh, Canada's Arctic alone, approximately 3.8 million square kilometres. To get some sense of that, that's nearly half the size of the continental United States. Uh, over the next few minutes, I intend to give you a broad brush of Canada's view of the Arctic, as well as of Canadian forces operations in the north, how these form part of a broader whole-of-government approach, and how I think they support international cooperation in the region. It's been uh, said that the Arctic truly is a place so alien and so harsh and yet so beautiful. Most Canadians that I talk to have never been there, um, and it's... One of the realities of our country that most are very closely cluttered among the American border. The North is a vast expanse. It's a long way from anywhere. Indeed, uh, Vancouver on Canada's west coast is closer to Mexico City than to the Northwest Passage. That gives some perspective of how Canadians look at it. It's a very different reality than you will find in those who live in Alaska, from Norway, from the Danes, from the people in Greenland, and from Russia. There's a real change in perspective that comes about because of it. And one of the things people are coming to realize is that it's an incredibly austere theater that brooks no mistake, leaves little margin for error, and so demands exceptional forethought and planning in order to work and survive there. Make no mistake, the inhospitable Arctic, with its ice and frigid temperatures, although changing, is still very much in charge of how we operate. But it's also vitally important because there are so many interests at stake there. With five coastal states encircling the Arctic Ocean and eight nations stretching beyond the Arctic Circle, the region is being propelled toward the center of world affairs. As you're aware, climate change is likely to make Arctic resources commercially exploitable much sooner than was previously thought possible even a few years ago. And as the ice melts, new shipping routes through the Arctic could potentially cut thousands of miles off ocean voyages. Canada's internal waters are expected to see more destinational shipping as commercial activity increases and the shipping season is significantly extended. Along with the movement of goods, tourism is growing. In 2003, there was a total of seven cruise ships operating in Canadian Arctic waters. By this year, that number is likely to be beyond 20. But what are the geopolitical implications of these changes? Fundamentally, the Arctic is a maritime theater. There is not now, and there's not likely to be, an explosion of road and rail connections. <laughs> 
as was the case in the 19th and 20th centuries with the great Western movement of settlers into the West of North America. There's times I think people don't quite realize that in the part of the world where I live. Communities, as they develop, will be connected by air and sea. They will be supplied and sustained by ship, not by rail car. It is an ocean space with its periphery and hundreds of islands that we consider. And as we do so, I would note that the legal regime governing the maritime domain of the whole world has changed more in the past 30 to 40 years than it had in the previous three to 400. That change affecting all of the world's oceans is enshrined in the United Nations conventions and the law of the sea and in the working through of the rights and the obligations that these laws impose upon coastal states and others, there is no doubt discussion and disagreement, and yes, tension. But there's also a framework within which issues of contention can be addressed. I think the example that we've just seen of the arrangement between Russia and Norway is the classic example of that. States will advocate for and defend their rights, and they'll use all of the elements of power available to them to do so, including their military. But that does not necessarily equate to the militarization of the North, as some have opined, especially since we're already operating within a framework of cooperation buttressed by agreements like the Law of the Sea. Let me be clear. Canada does not see a conventional military threat in the Arctic in the foreseeable future. The real challenges in the region, which are developing today and which we have an opportunity to be ahead of, relate to safety and security. From Canada's perspective, there are three broad areas of concern. First, the extraction of natural resources will heighten the possibility of environmental incident. A severe spill in the Arctic would have catastrophic consequences both for the fragile environment and for the livelihood of the communities that are in the north. And the difficulties of responding to a catastrophe in such a remote location mean that we must ensure ships in the Arctic are conducting their activities in a safe manner. The Canadian government has announced that it will expand the applicability of our pollution prevention legislation from 1 to 200 nautical miles in our Arctic waters. As well, Canada will require vessels entering the Arctic waters to report to the Coast Guard. The intention is not to impede international traffic through Canadian waters, but to ensure that the environment is protected and our legislative requirements are met. The second danger is the likely increase, as you've already heard, in search and rescue requirements as activities in the region rise. It's not if, but when we have the disaster that we will respond to and not just of adventurers in one or two. Conditions can become even more dangerous for shipping as the ice actually breaks up and starts moving. And climate change impacts may precipitate an increase in the number of communities, ships, and aircraft in distress. Finally, increased economic activity may also bring with it heightened criminal undertakings, such as the illegal entry of people and goods, human and drug smuggling, and possibly even terrorism. This is an access to nations. So we must be vigilant. Exercising Canada's sovereignty in the Arctic is intended to give clear voice to the need for responsible development to occur in accordance with regulation. And addressing those security challenges requires a coordinated, 
whole-of-government approach. People say that lots, but what does it mean? There's no single Canadian government department that can oversee all all Arctic matters. The government of Canada has made the Arctic one of its top priorities, outlined that in a northern strategy focusing on exercising sovereignty, promoting social and economic development, strengthening governance within the region, and protecting the environment. Now, while other departments and agencies, such as the Coast Guard and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, are primarily responsible for dealing with most security issues in the North, the Canadian forces have a significant role to play in supporting them, just as we do today and have always done in the Atlantic and Pacific approaches to Canada. National defence contributes mainly to the sovereignty pillar of that strategy. Canada First Defence Strategy directs the forces to demonstrate a visible presence in the region, to have the capacity to defend our Arctic territory and to assist other departments when called upon. To meet those commitments, Canadian forces maintain a number of assets in the north, and in addition, there are new initiatives underway to increase both the footprint and the situational awareness of our forces in the region. First is the acquisition of Arctic offshore patrol ships to better monitor our internal waters and our maritime approaches. Second is the establishment of an Arctic berthing and refueling facility on Baffin Island to enable naval vessels to resupply, refuel, and transfer personnel. Third, the establishment of a Canadian Forces Arctic Training Centre in Resolute Bay to facilitate training in this uniquely challenging climate. Fourth, the Polar Epsilon Project, which uses the Radarsat-2 satellite to more effectively survey our territory and our approaches. And finally, the expansion and the modernization of the Canadian Rangers, part-time local reservists who play a key role in providing persistent presence and surveillance in northern coastal regions. Indeed, they are and will remain a large part of Canada's eyes and ears on the ground. Fundamentally, the Canadian forces are developing increased awareness of the operating environment, an expanded connection with the indigenous populations that live there, and greater capacity to deploy and maintain presence. In essence, the ability to meet safety and security challenges and conduct operations in our Arctic. At the same time, we are helping other government departments fulfill their mandates in the North. We are developing a whole-of-government, integrated approach in the Arctic. And it is almost a blank sheet of paper upon which we have the opportunity to write it properly for intergovernmental cooperation. As an example, the Canadian Forces conduct three annual deployments into different parts of this vast region. And two of those involve extensive cooperation with other government departments. Operation Nunakput focuses on the Beaufort Sea region and the Mackenzie River in the Western Arctic. Involves Canadian Forces cooperation with the RCMP and the Coast Guard. Nunuk, the largest of our operations, takes place in the Eastern Arctic and brings together not only federal but also territorial and municipal departments and agencies. Because effective stewardship of the Arctic can only be achieved through productive partnerships between all levels of government and with the peoples of the North. But cooperation must also extend beyond our borders. Nations that have interests in common 
can find ways to work together. And because conditions in the North make operating in the region demanding and costly, governments must pursue innovative ways to overcome obstacles. Tension that is drawn to disagreements, such as over the status of the Northwest Passage, is in my view misplaced. It's an area where Canada and the U.S. have agreed to disagree. I'm not so sure, sir, I'd take back the comment about throwing down the gauntlet. <laughs> but they, I know what you mean. But with the public, I think, focused on such issues, insufficient attention is paid to the extensive international cooperation that does take place. Canada's relations with our northern neighbours are actually very positive. From an institutional perspective, northern issues are systematically addressed through the Arctic Council, which brings together the eight Arctic states and Indigenous organisations. Cooperation on the planning and the conduct of search and rescue operations is progressing to multilateral arrangements through that forum. Canada is cooperating on the work being done to delineate the extent of our continental shelf with the United States and with Denmark and contributes to multinational scientific efforts with Russia and Norway as well. As an example of that cooperation, it's the Canadian Coast Guard that transports a whole bunch of the supplies to the United States base at Thule in Greenland. The joint Canada-US-NORAD arrangement is responsible for continental aerospace control and maritime warning. There's lots that we do on an ongoing basis. And direct military cooperation is also evident in how our operations are evolving. For example, the United States and Denmark will both participate in the military exercise NASIK, which is part of Operation Nanook, to which I referred earlier and which will occur this coming August in the Davis Strait and Baffin Bay area. This past Monday, we wrapped up the third of the annual exercises. I hadn't described that one, but it's called Nunalavut. It occurs in the high central Arctic. This year at Alert, the most northerly inhabited place on Earth. General Natinchuk isn't here today because that's where he was, along with the Minister of National Defense. Both participated in the northern equivalent of a military march past with the Premier of Nunavut, Canada's newest territory, taking the salute. They were joined in that parade, I'm not quite sure the Army would call it that, by members of Greenland's serious dog sled patrol team. So there are many opportunities for and examples of valuable collaboration and information exchange in the North. I'd like to conclude by acknowledging that there's no doubt the Arctic's undergoing dramatic change. Canadians are focusing their attention on it more and more. It is an essential part of Canada's history and also of our national identity. The inherent complexities of the North feeds its allure into the minds of all Canadians, some of which don't understand it further than the ability to be able to protect it to save polar bears. But it resonates strongly within society. It's the same complexities of the Arctic question that necessitate cooperation across all levels of government, but also beyond our national borders. I think it's only through international cooperation that we will succeed in adapting to meet the new challenges, and we have the opportunity to be ahead of the problem. 
which is essentially to safeguard this precious inheritance and to ensure at the same time we fulfill our responsibilities as both coastal states and as Arctic nations. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Admiral McFadden. That was a fantastic presentation. Um, moving now to the Danish perspective, uh, we are delighted to have with us today Professor Mikkel Vidby Rasmussen, who is uh, head of the Danish Institute for Military Studies and also associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the U- University of Copenhagen, uh, a distinguished lecturer in, in many uh, prestigious locations. Uh, we're delighted. I have to say, you know, this part of the table is, is the governmental perspective, which sometimes you're a little bit constricted by what material has been cleared and approved. The second half of the table is the liberated part of the table, uh, meaning that they can be a little, they can be challenging uh, and, and, and liberating in their views. So with that, uh, I turn it to you, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I, I guess that that is your way of saying to me that I have to be a bit lively in order to keep people awake. Uh, I, and I'm, I'm, um, I'm very much aware at this time of day the best thing a speaker can do is to be brief. Um, and, and, and I will try to, to be so. Um, well, of course, I have to, to underline again that, that I'm speaking only in my personal capacity, and, and I'm sure that there will be someone from the Danish embassy here to, to correct me if I'm wrong. Um, when I think of the situation in the Arctic, I'm reminded of these medieval maps um, where the, the people drawing the maps in in 12th century or whatever, uh, when they, they, they came to a part of the world where they didn't really know what was going on, they wrote in Latin, here will be dragons. And then they would, they would draw nice little dragons and sea animals and stuff, which they kind of expected to be there because they didn't really know what, what, what else could be there. Um, and what, of course, happened was that in, 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 in due course, uh, people actually arrived to these places and didn't li- really find any dragons, uh, but they, they found a lot of other interesting things, so as a lot of ice or whatever they would find. Um, but I think this, this essential notion that we don't really know what is going to happen, that we have to deal in scenarios, uh, is, is very central to what we have been discussing today. And I also think it emphasizes that there is a, a bias within the, the security and defense community to expect dragons where there might not really be anything but ice or indeed the lack thereof. But on the other hand, I also think, and that is something a lot of people have been mentioning today, that you have to, to deal with the dragons. You have to think what dragons might appear in order to, to equip yourself to, to deal with them. But the point is that the dangers you will deal with are perhaps not the dangers you imagine at this point in time. You, you were thinking about dragons, and you took your shield and sword and whatever you need to, to slay a dragon, and you'll go there, and you'll find out that what you really need are uh, life rafts for uh, cruise ships which have been uh, been sailing into icebergs or whatever. The point is that for all our talk about we have to prepare for tomorrow or today, the, the, the fact, the brutal fact we'll have to deal with is that we don't really know exactly how this is going to play out and exactly what kind of capabilities if anything else, we have to deal with. And when you turn to, to, to Danish, or I should to be quite correct, to talk about the security and defense policy of the Kingdom of Denmark, which includes the European uh, Denmark as well as, as our Arctic territories, that we would be Greenland, um, then that is, is, is very clear. Perhaps Greenland is one of the places which can be influenced the most in its, it, it, in its uh, social and, and indeed in its uh, sovereign status by what is happening now. If, if indeed all the global warming scenarios are realized and it will be possible to, to drill oil and, 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 and 
dig into the mineral way, uh, wealth of, of Greenland, then green, uh, the people living there would actually have the ability, which they haven't had for, for the last 200 to 300 years, that is to be an independent country where can earn their own money and, um, and decide their own fate. And in that case, you won't have uh, people from, from the University of Copenhagen doing these presentations anymore, so I might as well enjoy it while I can. Um, uh, but, but, but until that situation may arise, the, the security and defense policy of, of Greenland is part of, uh, uh, of, of Danish security and defense policy, and it is most, mostly the Danish Navy which uh, take, um, take, take care of that, that side of the, the story. And the Danish Navy is organized as... Uh, uh, as one might expect from a small country, as a navy which which also deal with with the coast guard issues, and and when when you, when the Danish naval officers are taking on their coast guard hat, what worries them the most is what we have been talking about uh, today at length. That is, what are we going to do if a cruise ship uh, goes down uh, close to uh, to the coast of Greenland? Uh, we have two helicopters and a few surface ships, what on earth are we going to do? What are, uh, how are we going to deal with, with you know, in a, an environmental catastrophe? And so on and so forth. When the Navy is thinking in terms of being a Navy, uh, then the security aspects are, are, are more, um, more pronounced, of course, and there has been a lot of talk about how to, to best deal with the security, uh, with the security issues. And, and in this sense, of course, becomes most important for, for the Danish response to this, that there is a, an, an American uh, military presence in, in Greenland in, in the Thule Air Base, um, which means that f- since the Second World War, the, the way the Danish military has been dealing with uh, the issues of, of Greenland has been very much linked in to, uh, to a NATO context, linked into uh, to American defense requirements. Um, and what what we have been discussing at length in Denmark is, is the possibilities for, for developing this cooperation into something which deals with these new issues. And that leads me to the, the final um, points I would like to make, and that is exactly about these dragons, the dragons that will be out there in that, in that map we have not yet uh, made, um, the things we are expecting of the future. And I mean, what we basically have to... For all our talk about um, how nicely things are developing and how uh, great the Norwegian diplomacy is working in order to, to ensure that, that, that the future will be bright and the future will be uh, full of, of good diplomatic solutions, then, then I, I, I cannot think of anything else but, but that Geopolitics 101 will tell you that when new lines of communications are, um, are being introduced, uh, these lines are by their very definition being challenged, and they challenge lines of communications elsewhere, and and they define new new issues, um, and I think that is perhaps the real dragon in on on, on the new map of uh, of the Arctic, that there are some some things we know about how the world works and how geopolitics works, and this is something you have to be concerned about. That also means, of course, that you have to create a framework where you can actually deal with it, and we've been talking about this as length. But what perhaps we perhaps haven't been talking so much about is whether NATO could play a, a, a part in doing this. And from a small country perspective, I think there are two elements in, in this. One is that if, if the Danish armed forces are going to deploy more platforms, whatever they may be, in, in Arctic waters, then we won't be able to send as many troops to Afghanistan. Uh, because we have a defense budget which is 
as big as it is, and it's not going to be any bigger, I can assure you that. Um, and, um, and in that case, there are some real choices to be made um, of what we should be able to deliver. And in an alliance context, this, of course, means something to what kind of alliance we, we, we want to have. Is it an alliance which is focused on, in, on Article 5 defense in, in a narrow definition of the term, uh, or is it something which can be operating more broadly? Um, and the signal which, which Denmark is going to get from, uh, from, from Brussels and Washington, indeed, on this, uh, I think will, will have a real influence on how uh, our defense uh, is going to be organized. It's basically a question of whether it is the army or the navy who are going to take the biggest budget cuts. Um, but the other hand of the NATO issue deals with questions of uh, command structure, uh, is it so that there should be uh, an Arctic uh, NATO command? Um, but it also deals with something that the Admiral was addressing, that is the notion of civil-military interaction. Um, the way this has been dealt with in a NATO context has mostly been in, 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 in dealing with complex uh, counterinsurgency, um, where where this is, is part of the playbook for how to do it. But the, it is also the case when you are moving into uh, to, to areas like the Arctic where, uh, where it, of course, would make no sense to, to have military capabilities to take care of all these, um, um, these instances. So from a small country perspective, uh, the Arctic is not only about the Arctic, but also on, on, on some alliance questions and, and other set of questions would deal with what is going on in, in, in European security and in, in transatlantic security, uh, not as much as, um, as the Arctic itself. So um, I've been, uh, it has been a pleasure to listen to all, of, all these uh, guides to, to the, all, the, all the new maps uh, for the Arctic which has been presented, and, and I'm looking very, for, very much forward to the seminar you're going to do in 2040 when we can actually see what, what actually happened. Thank you. Thank you very much for that uh, very insightful uh, presentation. I'm not going to be here in 40 years, but may the next generation continue on. Um, next up, we are delighted that Dr. Pavel Bayev is, is with us today. Um, Dr. Bayev is research professor at the International Peace Research Institute in Oslo. Uh, Dr. Bayev is probably one of the foremost analysts of, of, the, of Russia, uh, the Russian military posture, and we've asked him to speak about and help us understand contextually uh, Russia's uh, strategic uh, vision uh, in the Arctic region and uh, hopefully give us a crystal ball and tell us what the future pretends. Dr. Bayev. Thank you, Heather. Uh, it's a great privilege to be a part of this conference, and it's also a very particular challenge of being one of the last speakers, and I will try to uh, move, uh, shift this challenge into an opportunity to make the shortest presentation. All right. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm taking the time. So, and for the start, let me be the only person in the room who disagrees in something with Sen Senator Makovsky. <laughs> she mentioned that there's a choice between two paths, cooperation and competition. And as far as Russian policy is concerned, it's never a choice. It's always an interplay. And there are never two different paths. It's always two sides of the same policy. And I agree with Aspen that the uh, agreement of, yes, of yesterday is a major achievement in one, uh, on one of the side of this policy, which might be called the institutional side. But there is also another side, which is probably better characterized as geopolitical. And they are probably more pronounced as different discourses, as different narratives. And you can never say 
now it's this narrative and now it's that narrative. They're always a very peculiar mixture of both. And Russia is was probably uh, responsible, its previous achievement probably is in 2007, in very clearly strengthening the geopolitical discourse after this flag-planting expedition. And uh, even with this achievement of yesterday, this discourse has not disappeared. It's still there, and essentially it is based on the premise that Russia is not an Arctic power. It's an Arctic superpower. It has a clear military superiority there, and it has a clear superiority in the number of icebreakers, for example. And this, superior, uh, this kind of status of Arctic superpower should be, this position of power should be usable, could be instrumentalized for some political purposes. And what makes it usable is, at least was, the perception that Russia can channel more resources than anybody else towards this direction. It can build new icebreakers, and it still does. It can build a new grouping of military forces. And that perception was definitely strongly undermined by the arrival of the crisis. Resources suddenly are not available. And that definitely strengthens the other side of, of the policy. And there are two other factors that um, works in the same direction, strengthening that policy. And one is the Obama factor. The reset certainly helps, and I will not elaborate on that. And the uh, second factor is the Medvedev factor. And it's far more difficult to, uh, to uh, pin down because he's not really a leader with his, with his own agenda. But probably so more the, the desire to uh, make his own mark, to uh, somehow present his own achievement. And I cannot claim any insight on how the agreement uh, from yesterday was reached. But I do think the Medvedev factor was strongly present there. That desire to, uh, to claim an achievement of his own is definitely there. And I would say even with all these factors at work, there are certain uh, directions in this kind of institutional, uh, on this institutional track where Russia is not really very interested in moving forward. And I can mention, for example, the uh, uh, problematic of the rights of the indigenous peoples. For Moscow, and particularly for Gazprom, the whole idea that the Nenets have rights on the resources on the Yamal Peninsula is mind-boggling. <laughs> and another direction, uh, just kind of impassive, is, is climate. Russia was not uh, planning to be a spoiler in the Copenhagen conference, and it wasn't. But it's quite satisfied with the outcome, which to all intents and purposes was a fiasco. And uh, you know, from the kind of Moscow uh, perspective, uh, the European Union in particular in its green drive has boldly arrived far beyond the borders of common sense. And I will not elaborate on that. You have Fox News for that. <laughs> Essentially, kind of the uh, key word in Moscow now is not global warming at all. It is the carbon protectionism as a characterization of EU policy. So uh, my kind of point here is that we cannot take for granted that kind of, uh, Russia is firmly set on this institutional dimension. And I will mention three things which are necessary for kind of strengthening this trend. And it, I am not saying about the crisis. So we still might have a kind of a protected uh, recession, but assuming a more optimistic perspective, the first thing I would mention is Stockman. Russia is really interested in having this 
pilot project, its major international undertaking, uh, launched and on track, and I think it was one of the key factors behind yesterday's uh, agreement. And, uh, and the second factor, and I will be repetitive here to the excessive, is the ratification of the UN Convention on the Law on the Sea by U.S. Senate. And I will not go there, uh, here anything, uh, anywhere. And the third point is what would kind of keep Russia as the player which plays by the rules is the uh, Russian claim on expansion of the continental shelf. And the approval of this claim, uh, Russia was the first country to present this claim back in 2001, and it was the United States which raised the objections which led to that claim being returned for further uh, kind of data gathering, and it's still not returned to the UN. Since then, you know, 50 uh, countries, from what I know, have submitted claims, Nauru and Tonga, but not Russia, because the data is still not gathered. And Russia is very nervous about that claim, and it would be very important when it is submitted that it be kind of treated uh, uh, with kind of uh, understanding attitude. And I will end here. Try to beat me. Thank you so much. <laughs> Whoever said the last panel after lunch would be sleepy? You have, you all have defied that. Uh, that. Uh, and last but not least, uh, we are de- delighted to to have. Uh, you have the, the most unenviable task. Not only do you have a senior Norwegian government official sitting at this table, you get to give the Norwegian perspective, Paul. We are delighted to have Paul Sigurd Hilda with us, who is a senior uh, senior fellow and head of the Department of Norwegian Security Policy at our partner institution, the Norwegian Institute uh, for Defense Studies. And Paul, you get to be uh, sort of close out, and then we'll open to questions and to give the Norwegian uh, security perspective in front of the Norwegian Deputy Defense Minister. <laughs> Thank you, Heather. Um, no pressure. <laughs> no, no, no. I've actually been asked to, to sort of uh, avoid that topic, but uh, no. But I'll start off by by. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh, I don't take orders from him. So, um, <laughs> I'll start off uh, the same way as, as Pavel did. That it's it's uh, very challenging at the end of a, such a sort of insightful day to say something something that hasn't been said. And, and being at the very end of the line, I'm, I had a manuscript. I was used to going, oh, that's been said, and that's been... And then I just gave up on my whole manuscript. So what I'll do is, uh, instead of, of, of saying what I'm supposed to say, or of those thinking about saying, is just uh, start off by giving two examples to illustrate uh, what a lot of other people have said about the challenges we face in the Arctic, uh, sort of from, from the Norwegian experience, and then one, make just one little point about, um, again, from the Norwegian pers- uh, experience, when it comes to, to, to what Stan, uh, Stanberg called the Arctic opportunity. Uh, the two examples are um, illustrating the challenges we face. Is in 1995, uh, a very small uh, Russian-owned uh, cruise liner called Maxim Gorky uh, came into trouble uh, just uh, off Svalbard, and um, all the passengers had to evacuate the ship. And they were very lucky because the weather was nice and there was an Norwegian Coast Guard ship close by. And when the Coast Guard ship came, there were people in open lifeboats and standing on the ice in normal clothes with just the life vest on. If the weather had been bad and, and the ship hadn't been close by, they would all have died because there's no way they would have survived in the water. The second example is, is, is um, last summer, a uh, Norwegian Super Puma helicopter operating out of, of Longyear City. Uh, I guess I could call it the capital of Svalbard, um, had to go to the northernmost tip of Greenland to, to save one of these um, suicidal explorers, I guess, um, who had appendicitis. Um, 
And the um, plane that the Danish uh, rescue service on, on Greenland uh, uses couldn't land because of the snow. So they had to use the only helicopter in the whole region, which was on Svalbard. So just to get there, and first of all, they had to, there was a trip of 1,206 nautical miles, which is almost three times the range of the helicopter. So they had to fly over to Greenland and land and refill. But just to get to the first refilling uh, uh, sort of base, they had to fill the helicopter with barrels of petrol and manually retank the helicopter while flying to get there. So it just sort of gives a perspective on, on the range um, involved here and, as, and distances in, involved and, and, and the challenges we, when they face. Now, to my sort of um, Arctic opportunity point is that... Uh, Russia is, particularly from a Norwegian perspective, but I, I guess from, from most Arctic country perspectives, the more challenging partner. As in, yes, so the U.S. and Canada might have their differences, but still, as in Russia, it's somewhat different than the others, to put it like that. Um, but Espen mentioned the, the Grain Zone Agreement uh, signed in 1978, but Norwegian-Russian cooperation in, in the Arctic goes further back than that, as in, in 1950, uh, yeah, 1956, the first search and rescue agreement was signed between Norway and the Soviet Union. And yes, this was on the Khrushchev and sort of things were improving, but it was very much the Cold War. Uh, the agreement was renewed in 1988, still the Cold War and Gorbachev. And then in that year, um, this uh, sort of an annual, still ongoing annual um, bilateral search and rescue exercise series called Barons started. Uh, a similar version to that uh, called Barron's Rescue we started in 2001, and that's a sort of a Nordic-Russian, as in Swedish-Finnish-Norwegian-Russian um, sort of cooperation. So the point I'm trying to get out here is, is this is an area, search and rescue, police management, uh, etc., is an area where Russia is interested in cooperation. And Merkovsky talked about sort of the Arctic as an opportunity to, to use the reset button and, and sort of to get relations on track with Russia in an area where there is sort of there are common interests. And this is something that would definitely not only be recognized by Norway, but also very much supported. As Norway has traditionally in its security policy tried to sort of keep a balancing act, and, and, and Espen mentioned this, that between sort of having a firm base in Western cooperation in NATO and particularly in its relations with the U.S., but at the same time trying to keep tension low with Russia and developing sort of confidence-building cooperation, particularly in the Barren Sea, but sort of other areas as well, but, and just to sort of to, to keep tension low and, and had some success with that during the Cold War and even more so after the Cold War. So, so this, this sort of effort of, of engaging Russia in the Arctic is, is very much the, uh, sort of a position that Norway would um, support and uh, encourage, but it does take work. And it does, uh, as loads of speaker, sort of speakers have mentioned, that that work is ongoing, but it needs attention. And I beat you, because I'm finished. Thank you so much, Paul. Excellent, excellent. Um, the moderator of any panel has only two jobs. One is to end promptly on time and that we have 10 minutes. And the second job is to use an American baseball analogy to throw out the first pitch to uh, our distinguished panel who's officially in the batting cage, and then I will open it up to your uh, softballs, curveballs, hardballs, and fastballs uh, in the 10 minutes uh, time that we, that we have. My, my question sort of teases out a little bit what, uh, what Espen was saying about creating this middle ground, if you will, for in the security field. Um, and here's my 
my sort of my premise, and I'd love each of you, if you can, to touch on whether you think this is viable or not. Um, the Arctic Council may provide, as we're seeing in the search and rescue area, may provide the platform for this type of discussion amongst the Arctic uh, Council members on enhancing this middle ground, if you will. But perhaps it, it's insufficient, and perhaps the Arctic Council members do not wish to amend the charter as it stands to address security issues. So do we need a forum, a framework, to talk about these, the middle ground but crosses into the military aspect. Is NATO that military ground? Is the NATO-Russia Council a potential? Or is NATO absolutely the wrong instrument? And, and Pavel, this is to you, because of sort of this Russian interplay, it may not be the right thing. And if it's not, what should we be looking for? And maybe we'll just shoot it right down the, right down the line. Esmond, do you want to come? Well, I mean, when we cooperate militarily with uh, Canada, the U.S., or Denmark, for instance. We do that in NATO by definition. And uh, NATO is also a generic defense alliance, which still has an Article 5 clause and is still also about defending the home turf, although most of our daily activity is in deployed operations. So in that sense, there, in my view, there is a NATO dimension to it. And I think part of the answer to what you're saying is exactly the NATO-Russian Council or deviations of that, uh, where be because many of these, I mean, it would be practical to cooperate within an already existing military institution, but also to reach out to the, to the, uh, the relevant partner, Russia, which is, you know, the, the present and very, very important in the, in the area. So I think there should be a NATO dimension to that, and I don't think the Arctic Council necessarily will benefit from becoming a semi-military organization. I think that's better left to those who already are. Can, can I just use the opportunity to, to echo an important point in Mikael in Webby Knudsen's uh, 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 excellent presentation, and that is, there is, there is, I mean, to the extent we think there is a military relevance to the high north, that will lead to a choice between navy and army mm -hmm. in small countries, and probably even in big countries, but definitely in smaller countries. And, and actually, in our, I mean, between our two countries, that, is, that difference is very clear. I mean, we are investing much more in naval and air capacities, you are investing relatively more uh, in, uh, in, in army capacities uh, for expeditionary purposes, uh, which we also take part in, but the balance is different. Mm -hmm. And that's going to happen. So I mean, that's one of the consequences of this. And of course, uh, because there's not that much to do for the army in the, in the Arctic. Yeah. I think the search and rescue example shows that the Arctic Council could indeed take on broader, uh, broader functions but it obviously has limited participation. So uh, I think the jury is still out on whether uh, another forum or whether NATO or one of its partnership mechanisms. I think if, if NATO can add value without creating tensions or self-fulfilling prophecies about militarization, it may be the NATO partnership institutions, including the much-neglected Euro-Atlantic Partnership Council <laughs> or the NATO-Russia Council itself. Uh, although that would leave out Sweden and Finland. So we have to think about who are the stakeholders and not in, inadvertently m marginalize ones who now have a seat at the table. Uh, but I think NATO's partnership tools could be the catalyst, perhaps, for expanded capabilities to address the search and rescue, humanitarian response, uh, all these things, without necessarily creating a competitive military dynamic, which is definitely what we want to avoid. Uh, very quickly, I, I think the, you know, the NATO partnership arrangements are incredibly important to be able to do that. Um, there is little, I think, utility in replicating that within the Arctic Council in ways that we can already have the discussion. The difficulty will be making sure that, as you've said, it's not a self-fulfilling prophecy. Perception 
and how we manage that relationship with Russia needs to be an integral part of how we even have the discussion. So. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think the uh, dialogue between Russia and NATO, which has resumed a few months ago, uh, needs more uh, substance than it currently has. Yes, there is Afghanistan, uh, and uh, there is a lot to discuss there. There is probably a bit of the anti-missile defense. I'm not sure how well the discussions are going to go in this direction. But the Arctic you know, could be something to, uh, to add to these discussions. And I think uh, this forum may be more appropriate than the Arctic Council, which has its own agenda, its own profile, and doesn't really need expansion in this direction. Um, whereas it's it sort of it's natural in a sense that, that NATO should be a forum given that four of the 45 uh, sort of states are, are NATO members but the last one is explicitly unwilling to engage in such a cooperation and uh, Dimitri Rogozin had a, an article recently uh, basically saying that um, something on the lines that, that the Arctic is a peaceful place so why bring the military alliance NATO into it uh, so I find it difficult to believe that Russia, at least, at least until the recalling goes, I guess, uh, sort of uh, is willing to, to engage in a dialogue oh, oops, on the Arctic. But if things sort of warm up and, and sort of get better, that it would be a natural forum. Because uh, as I see it, the, there is a need for such a forum. And given that the Arctic Council, for <coughs> reasons we've heard about earlier today, can't be used for that, then, then yeah, NATO, Arctic, uh, NATO Russia Council could be uh, a good forum. Thank you. I'd love to open this up to, for questions. What I'd like to do is just take a, collect a few of the questions and then have, again, go down the line and just touch on those that you'd like. We have at least two in the back there and then two here. We'll take four questions and then we'll just do a rapid answer if that's okay. Thank you. Please. Thank you. Uh, my name is Sergei Chumarev, a counselor, legal counselor from the Russian embassy. And uh, many thanks for organizers. And uh, we have um, um, had a clear view of the U.S. strategic interests in the Arctic. And finally, we came down to the analyzing Russian strategic views. And um, we have seen kind of a disbalance in this field because no Russian state representatives were kind of talking to the speaking today. And uh, there was a view presented which is probably from that gray zone which disappeared uh, a day ago. That's something which was born in the USSR, and this vision is clearly outdated. And um, uh, one of the speakers said that um, Russia is a partner, but a little bit different from the others. And probably next time we will be uh, ready to overcome this strange and outdated view, since um, as the objective kind of discussion showed to us, and many other speakers talked about it, that Russian position in the Arctic is strictly in conformity with the existing laws, and we are leading one of the, together with the U.S., leading the SAR exercise. We are one of the main contributors to the Arctic Council and other processes in the high north in the Arctic. And uh, probably this kind of uh, a little bit of Russophobia as an Arctic ideology is really uh, not well-placed in the uh, current situation. I thank you. 
Everett Lilia, uh, European Liaison Office at the Pentagon for UCOM and SHAPE. Uh, my question is for uh, Mr. Baev, and uh, you mentioned uh, the Stokman uh, gas field, and my question for you is with the changes in the uh, gas market dynamics with unconventional gas sources, has that forced the Russians to reevaluate its importance, and does it change their calculus for how they view the Arctic as a, as a resource field in general? Questions? Yes, sir, right there. Thank you. Um, just one comment and one, uh, one question, and the comment is, we've talked about looking for dragons. The one issue, of course, and we had a bit of a snicker about pirates and, and failed states being in the Arctic. The one thing I would remind the audience, of course, is that when you look at the social economic conditions of the indigenous populations, particularly in Canada and Greenland, I mean, for Denmark has actually been sanctioned by UNESCO. Uh, if we're looking into the future for security issues, I think that it's remiss of us to consider that, in fact, that there may, in fact, be some long-term problems in terms of resource development in the face of ongoing poverty and social issues. Uh, that's just an observation. Uh, my question is to the Deputy Minister, and he's talked about cooperation, and I understand fully. My question to you is, in the last 10 years, well, 13 years to be technically correct, um, Norway has expanded huge amounts of money. In fact, in some programs, probably higher than anything during the Cold War, even prior to the German invasion, of defense expenditures on very combat-capable forces, the, uh, the uh, F-35s, the uh, Aegis system on the, on the frigates, the Skull. I mean, these go way beyond any constabulary capabilities, and they are just in the last decade where you've made the decisions. I'm just wondering if you could explain a little bit uh, to sort of square up the cooperation you're talking about, but getting this very, very high uh, combat intensity capable forces. Okay, each of the panelists have one minute to um, address uh, the questions and provide a closing thought. I'll just go right I'll down go, the line. I'll go later. Okay, well, we're going to, okay, well, st Paul, we're going to start with you and we'll work our way to me. Okay. <laughs> now I can be controversial then and say that, uh, first of all, Shoal wasn't built because of uh, sort of a, a threat perception or uh, anything else. It's more of an um, employment scheme. That's, uh, that's controversial. You can, <laughs> Espen can counter me on that. Um, so I don't know, as in, yes, as in Norway, uh, Norway does place a lot of emphasis on, on keeping a navy that is, is, uh, is capable, but I, uh, and, and yes, as in worries about sort of our big neighbor to the east, uh, as a Norwegian defense minister once said a long time ago that, that um, for a mouse to sleep next to a bear is, is challenging, even though the bear is, is as nice as it can get. So he didn't use quite those words, but that was his message. So yes, as it is a worry in Norway, but but I don't think we should uh, uh, sort of uh, put too much emphasis. There are many other factors in here involved as well. Sorry. Yes, I have, should have probably mentioned that I was speaking in my personal capacity only <laughs> as an irresponsible analyst. Uh, but on the question about Stockman, yes, I think it is a major factor in the, in the near future, and definitely. Russia and Gazprom, specifically Gazprom uh, is extremely nervous about the future of the gas market. Uh, all the perceptions, all the assessments from two years ago now look completely irrelevant. And what future holds for the gas market, how it will be separated from other energy markets, 
it's a major uncertainty factor, and Gazprom is trying to reduce it, including by uh, investing in projects that will somehow fix this energy market, particularly in Europe, into something predictable. And it requires a lot of money, and the money is not available. So, uh, you know, it's one of the major, major uncertainty factors, far more difficult to predict than how the ice would melt. Um, those socioeconomic conditions is way beyond my area of expertise. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad you pointed it out because it, um, it is a serious problem um, and, and a problem which, which, oddly enough, might, might get worse if, if uh, the economic development which is foreseen is, 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 is going on because what exactly is going to be the consequences for Greenlandic society if there is a, a big oil rush? Will Will the people living there actually be able to take part in this? Uh, and, and if not, will it mean great uh, demographic uh, transformations of that society if, if people from outside is going to do it? And, and that's going to be a real challenge, a challenge which I don't think has been addressed seriously enough. Um, and that's also a kind of security issue, uh, although of a, of, of a different kind. And perhaps that is, as you alluded to, some of the dragons we have not seen. Um, uh, which, which might be out there, and that is, that is the kind of reactions that you don't really fight with, with swords or, uh, or icebreakers or, uh, or well-armed patrol ships, um, uh, but, but a security issue nonetheless. So thanks for pointing that one out. Uh, the only comment that I would make, um, Dr. Bear, is following on to the, you know, the state of natial, native uh, social circumstances in the high north. I, I think there's very definitely a reason why Canada's northern strategy just doesn't talk about Sovereignty is an aspect, protection of the environment. It talks about self-strengthening governance. It talks about promoting social and economic development because we know that there will be extraordinary pressures that are going to mount. It's this whole issue of baby steps are being made. Should more be done? Absolutely. We need to get on that path and move ahead before these problems augment to the stage that they will. This is not theory. The Arctic will be more used, it will be exploited, it will put greater pressure upon the social circumstances of those populations. Um, but, but I would make the point that um, I, I'm afraid I arrived quite late this morning and so didn't hear many of the presentations, but one of the questions of do you build the infrastructure and have economic development flow from it or does the economic development then be the pressure for flowing infrastructure? One of the reasons why we need to go north is because in the doing of that, the infrastructure will develop. It will be developed in a regulated fashion. This is not going to be the Wild West. And the development and the social circumstances of Native people need to be integral to the way the Arctic develops. That is an issue of sovereignty. Because if we get that wrong, there will be security issues that we will be dealing with which are extraordinarily more powerful than they are today. So it isn't something that is a, an adjunct to the way that we need to do this. But building refueling facilities, putting greater presence, the reason that we've structured many of the exercises and the operations that we do in the Arctic in a way that isn't distinctly military alone is so that we are forcing those connections to some degree with unexpected consequences. I'm not quite sure I'd refer to them as dragons, but we change all sorts of things on the basis of finding out, no, that's not actually the way it should be done. You know, Rob, you'll know, I think, 
95% of the Canadian population is within 200 miles of the American border. That means there's a whole part of the surface of this earth that is very sparsely populated. And they are very remote communities and will be put under greater pressures as a result of the change that is ongoing. It has to be fundamentally part of the strategy. Uh, nothing much was addressed to me, but uh, I would just say to my colleague from the Russian embassy that uh, I think he has a very good valid point, but next year if you do this conference again, more Russian official representation. Uh, and I think generally if there's lingering Russophobia out there uh, on, on this issue, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, uh, the solution, though, is, is transparency. I think that uh, the kind of uh, detailed information we got from Admiral McFadden's briefing today is a kind of a model of what uh, would be very useful for all of us to hear from a Russian representative, uh, either at the next year's forum or at, uh, at the NATO-Russia Council or, or at the Arctic Council. The last word. Thank you very much. <clears throat> for, uh, two things. First, to the more general question. Uh, I think it's true that we don't know all the dragons, and uh, the dragons may be different when we find them than we thought, but there are certain common threads. I am convinced that whatever problems are out there and will occur out there, we would, there are good reasons already now to find out how we can better navigate, how better communicate, better find out what's going on, and uh, have a certain preparedness for contingencies. I mean, that's, that's universally relevant, even if you don't have the exact picture, for something is going to change, and there will be more rather than less activity. I think that's something that comes very clearly out of this. On the specific question, well, the observation is perfectly right. I mean, Norway has a, a relatively high defense spending, uh, second in NATO per capita, uh, but it's, um, and, it, and we do maintain a warfighting capability. Uh, history has taught us that uh, even if we prepare for uh, peace, sometimes things go in a different direction. And, and we don't think it's incompatible because we, we do think to have a, uh, you know, we're a few people, large territory, seven times as much water as the landmass, even if the landmass is relatively big. We cannot compete with anyone on quantity, so we have to invest in quality and, uh, and capabilities that can be deployed to whatever happens, uh, which doesn't mean that there is a designated target. It's just that, you know, that's part of our foreign security policy. And our, as I said, our 61 years' experience in NATO is that a solid foundation in NATO and a credible defense at home does provide uh, clarity and a solid platform from which we can work with all our neighbors. Please join me in a round of applause for this fantastic panel. While we, uh, we ask our panel, uh, uh, as they depart with our great th thanks, uh, I'd like to invite Rolf Tomness up, and we're going to give literally two minutes of closing remarks. So stay right where you are. Don't leave. We'll be right there. Yes. No, please. Yes. Dear colleagues and friends, we have come to the end of our conference. It has been a great day. And I would like to thank you all for your important contributions. I have listened to you with great interest and I've enjoyed very much of the discussion. And we will take these perspectives and knowledge with us into the further activities within the framework of the program. But let me also finally, on behalf of myself and the program, thank, uh, give, thank, give thanks to, 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 to CSIS, uh, to John, to Heather, 
to Jamie and indeed to all of you for hosting this very timely conference on uh, U.S. strategic interests in the High North um, and for organizing it uh, in such an excellent way. So please uh, join me in, in giving a hand to, to um, Heather and her colleagues. Thank you very much. I know you are so tired of me today. I, I'm sorry to make to do one last word, if I can figure this out. If you would like more information, that's not the right thing. I'm sorry, Jamie, I blew it. Um, if you would, here we are. Oops. If you would like more information about this project, the geopolitics in the high north, this is our... Our website, of course, the CSIS website uh, also can guide you here. I know we've run out of our reports, but you can get them online. Um, I, I learned several things today. I dragons because my new term. That's going to be my new. What are the dragons out there? I have learned that I'm not sure I'm going on an Arctic cruise anytime soon. Um, but what I also learned is someone so beautifully said this morning. They said, "Well, this room is proof." The Arctic is rising in American consciousness as an issue. You and the fullness of this room and the active participation show that the Arctic is starting to rise on that list of priorities, and nothing could make me happier. So on behalf of CSIS and Dr. Hamry and our team, thank you for making this conference so successful. And to all of our panel participants, we say a great thank you and have a terrific day. Thank you. <laughs>